This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, an airplane surprise from Washington. And we get the latest out of the Heli Expo. Also, things are looking good from Gamma. Who's going to run the FAA? We'll see, David. All right, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And David, our guest this week um, has got everybody's dream job. This is Mark Brown from Quest, who makes the Kodiak. Uh-huh. Mark's a young guy that uh, we got to know a little bit through a story we did in Utah. Tom Haynes talks to him. And uh, you just got to wait and see, because this guy has the coolest job in the world. I saw some pictures out of that Red Rocks area out there, and it just looks like it's awesome. Yeah, very cool. So this is um, our continuing destination series that you'll that we're doing all through March. You'll find online and in video and the magazine and, of course, here on Hangar Talk. Right. So uh, let's get started. A bit of a surprise. This is just coming up today, but we flew it a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Our buddy Dave went out to Washington to fly the secret Dave airplane. Hirschman, let's specify. Yeah, that's right. Big, have, time, big time Dave Hirschman, editor yeah. at large. Yep. Um, and uh, went out to fly this this airplane, which he loved. This is the Vachon. Uh-huh. New company, new airplane, the Ranger. It's a two-person side-by-side seating. And the big news out of this, Ian, I think, is that it's selling for less than 100000 bucks. Yeah. Now, it's an LSA. It is. And it has a um, Continental engine, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's right. So Continental engine and um, Dynan avionics. And there's a tie there. Uh-huh. It's because... The airplane's actually made by folks from Dinah. In the Seattle area. That's right. where they're headquartered. That's right. Um, and so because of the way that they manufacture and some other things, that's how they've been able to get the sub-$100,000 price. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of a vertical arrangement. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but it's really cool. Dave loved this thing. He said it's, it's you know, a lot of LSAs, I think, suffer mm-hmm. from the, I don't know, maybe the, even if it's not true of people think maybe they're a little flimsy right. or, you know, I mean, the name Light Sport Airplane. Uh-huh. But he said this thing is the real deal. It's the it's all metal construction. Yep. And uh, it's got, it does, what it doesn't have is interesting to me. It's it's uh, an, a high wing airplane 
without a strut. Yeah. I think that's cool, especially for photos. That is very cool. Um, Visibility, yeah. yeah. Tricycle gear, and Dave said, you know, big regular size tires, big um, strong landing gear, big and roomy inside, bigger than a 152. A pretty darn good amount of room in the cockpit. That for, I think 46 inches. It's pretty good. Yeah, it is really good. So go online, check it out. The Vashon Ranger, really cool airplane. And uh, I think they're going to have a lot of success with 99, it. 99500 bucks. Yeah. I like that price. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, all right. Let's talk about HAI, Heli the, Expo. The Heli Expo Internationals. That's a really interesting show. Now, you've been there before, mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, sure. I have not. Yep. But there's been a lot of news out of there. There really has, yeah. The helicopter industry, which was really hammered a couple of years ago when the gas prices, uh, oil prices, I should say, fell. Right. Um, the whole industry just sort of put on the brakes. It seems like they're rebounding. So, like you said, a lot of news, including a couple of things that are new again. So, I don't know. What did you see that you liked? Well, one thing I saw that was really kind of cool is the Hughes-Schweitzer 300 aircraft. Mm-hmm. And this is some this aircraft, a uh, rotorcraft that's been really popular through the years. And I guess uh, Korsky bought that line. Mm-hmm. But so now um, they have uh, released that line again. And so now Schweitzer is sort of, in a way, back on that aircraft. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, an independent company out of Texas. That's going to uh, do the parts support and theoretically, they say restart production. Rotorcraft Services Group yeah. acquired it. Yeah, this one, um, a lot of people love this. You know, if they didn't have Robinsons on their training fleet, it's like yeah. they love the 300. But the service, apparently, the part support has been just horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of operators there are really hoping for the best. And I was just telling you before the podcast that I know that a lot of police forces use that 300. Mm-hmm. And that's been a real popular uh, roadcraft to fly with, you know, with a lot of folks in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Good training. And, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I saw that I thought was really interesting is this Honeywell forecast. Um, they do this every year now uh, of the number of aircraft, uh, helicopters specifically, that they think are going to be produced over the next five years. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're saying now, this year, that it's going to be about 4,000. 4,000 helicopters over five years. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, right. That's a lot of units. It is. It is. It's pretty healthy. Um, not uh, maybe the heyday from a few years ago, but starting to spring back and looking good. And combined with that, of course, they're, they're going to need pilots, right? Yeah. With the, with that many helicopters, they're going to have to have people to fly them. Yeah. And so um, I got a tip for folks who are job seekers or people who want to get their aviation career going in high gear. You know, Sun and Fun is coming up in a few weeks, Ian. Mm-hmm. So it's not too... Uh, uh, early to check out a uh, jobs fair that's put on by the folks at JS Firm, and that's a job seeker job board um, firm. One of the best kept secrets at Sun and Fun is this April 11th jobs fair from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. So folks who are interested in getting in aviation, whether it's helicopters or fixed wing or turbos or anything else, uh, check out that that jobs fair. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, the, uh, David, that Honeywell report, um, it pretty much jives with what we're seeing out of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. You know, they just released their 2017 year-end numbers. The gamma numbers. Yeah, and helicopters did really well. They were up, I think it was almost 8%, which is huge. That's right, Ian. So the gamma numbers indicated that the rotorcraft segment actually stabilized after a couple of years of declining deliveries. Okay. So that's good news for the rotorcraft industry. Uh, business jet airplane deliveries also grew slightly. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And there's some other strong numbers that we could talk about too with these with the yeah. gamma report. Yeah. What else did you see that you liked? Well, I'll tell you what that was uh, that was interesting to me. Well, still, Cirrus seems to be leading the pack hmm. as far as um, you know fixed wing airplanes and the piston fleet go mm-hmm. uh, with 377. 
But I also noticed that Diamond was hot on their tails with about 137 shipped. Nice. And Textron, of course, with their Cessna 172 trainers, uh, the whole Textron fleet is at 487. Okay. And um, and one thing that we talked about before the podcast is that Piper had pretty strong year too, especially with their archers they delivered uh they shipped rather 72 archers yeah that's phenomenal for and them so we did the math and that was about uh six aircraft a month yeah that's really good and you know what they just had that massive uh record-breaking order for them to over fan the next May over in china that's another 155 airplanes yeah and simon caldegat the ceo um you know who was a guest a couple of weeks ago was saying that their workforce increased 25 percent last year that's good yeah and, and it's good growing. for florida too yeah. i mean it brings a lot of a lot of money into the economy and um over in Vero Beach, and that's just that's strong for that segment. It is. And if you look actually at all the numbers, what I think the big takeaway is that training airplanes across all the manufacturers were up big. That's a good observation, Ian. You're right. And we just talked about the Archer. We can also talk about the Cessna 172. Mm-hmm. We are soon going to have a little report on the Cessna JTA, which yeah. is a, it's not a jet engine, but it's <laughs> <laughs> jet fuel. It's jet fuel. So I'm telling everyone that, I, that I've uh, that actually- you flew a jet? <laughs> yes, right. I'm a pilot of a jet fuel aircraft. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, I think all good stuff out of Gamma. You know, again, Technum, 170 airplane. They're looking strong as usual. I, one thing you mentioned, Textron, that's really amazing to me. Barons, 23 Barons. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, uh, that is I like good. that. I mean, that's just people love that aircraft. It's yeah. a highly capable machine. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good step up for a yeah. lot of folks that are, you know, have learned on singles. But if they want to step up a little further, uh, look look no uh, further than Honda, yeah. which shipped 43 of their Honda Jet. Okay. And That's then the, the thing that was interesting to me, Ian, was that Gulfstream Aerospace, they shipped 120 jets. And these, wow. these are large jets. These yeah. are very big aircraft. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's looking like 90 of the large cabin ones, too, the 450, 550, 650, and 650ER. Exactly. So that's amazing. Yeah, so big numbers there. And uh, so it looks like the aviation industry in general is turning around a little bit. And that's good news for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I want to talk now about this report that came out earlier this week that, uh, well, let's just say it's a bit of a head-scratcher. We talked about a couple weeks ago, Administrator Huerta, his term was up. Right. Uh, We have an interim administrator right now, and, of course, that means that the president gets to appoint a new— Head uh, of the FAA. Head of the FAA, who then has to be confirmed by the Senate. But uh, a report in Axios Mm -hmm. uh, says that— one particular person is under consideration for the White House, uh, so t- tell us about it. And that would be uh, President Donald Trump's personal pilot, John Duncan, who does have great aviation experience. He ran Trump's uh, you know, mini fleet of airlines during uh, the elections, hmm. which also carried over to running uh, the schedules and, and getting pilots for Vice President Pence. Okay. Now, the one problem I have is that I know that Pence's aircraft ran off the runway. Oh, yeah. And now no, accidents happen you know, yeah, to everybody. Yeah. But to me, um, I, I would like to see someone who has an aviation background mm-hmm. to run the FAA. Uh, I think there might be other more qualified personnel. Yeah. You know, I think as we know, it's like having a pilot at the head of the FAA would be great. Right. Um, that's really nice. I mean, uh, there is one in, in an interim step right now. Administrator Huerta was not. But it, but Huerta did a fantastic job. He did. And part of that was that he got he opened the FAA up to be more of a touchy feely type yeah. of organization <laughs> where you know where they would slap you on the back a little bit and want you to get more training rather yeah. than cite you for issues. For yeah, small mistakes. That's and right. They brought in all kinds of new technology to help 
aviation be safer? Yeah, push next gen um, back on schedule. I mean, I think one thing we have to remember is that as much as it would be nice to have the expertise of a pilot in the head FAA job, it's not a flying job. It's not. You really need to know the mechanics of how government moves and yeah. how things work, which brings up a little tidbit, a little side conversation to this Yeah, about um, Sam Graves, who... Now, Sam Graves, is he a pilot also? Oh, yeah, big time. Very active. I thought active. so. Yep. I thought he was an active pilot. Yep. But now he uh, said he wasn't aware that he was up for consideration to lead the FAA, and uh, which is kind of, it was kind of like news to him. Yeah. Because he really wants to seek the chairmanship of the House Transportation Committee. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. The uh, Kansas City Star saying that Sam Graves is under consideration, um, which – in a lot of ways, it would make sense because it's somebody who knows government, who can work with Congress, and who has the expertise. He's extremely familiar with government. He knows how that works, and he can usher bills. Well, he knows how to usher bills through. Yeah. So he knows, you know, how things can can get done and who you need to talk to about it. Yeah. Um. But uh, as it said, uh, his spokesman actually said. Uh, that he had, he does want that chairmanship, which um, I think is not a, a big surprise. And with uh, Chairman Schuster retiring, it's like he, you know, Sam has a shot at it. Sure, so, he yeah. does. Yeah. So, so that'll be interesting. Inter- it'd be very interesting to watch and see what happens here with that. It will be. Um, I love the quote from Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, who's the chairman of the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. This is about Trump's personal pilot. He said, quote, I'd prefer that they send somebody up that we can confirm easily. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Not the biggest compliment in the world, is it? No, but yeah. he, but he's looking at the bottom line, which is we need someone there to manage the next gen systems yeah. that can run things through and, and sort of you know have a cool head to prevail. Yeah. Which also could bring us to the next subject that we want to talk about. Yeah. Which is uh, I think it's time for a little bit of a victory lap. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's run real quick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you you may have heard by now that. Um, the push for privatized ATC is, at least for the time being, gone, dead. Off the, off the table. Done, over. And I think that, that folks could uh, clap. Oh, I hear them in the background yeah. on the podcast clapping. Yep. But, you know, that a lot of that is due to the lobbying uh, efforts of AOPA and some other general aviation uh, associations. That's right. And this was not an easy battle to fight. Yeah, I mean, the tens of thousands of members who called their representative uh, in Congress, that was a huge impact. Uh, and basically, the reason it's dead is because there weren't the votes from uh, the chairman Schuster's own party, um, certainly from the Democratic side. And that's because they heard from their constituents. That's right. That's true. And the other side of that is that um, it was really important to establish a long-term financing author- reauthorization bill for the FAA mm-hmm. and so, to uh, keep the money flowing to that. And you know, we don't want to have any kind of stoppages like we've recently seen up here, like teacher stoppages in yeah. West Virginia. Yeah. You don't want that to happen in, with our complicated air system. Yeah. So uh, gone for now. Um, And, you know, I think we'll see what happens with the next chairmanship, with the president's future budgets. But uh, I think our biggest threat is is past for the time being. It is. It is. Great work from everybody. It is. And I want to can I do we have time for me to just read one thing that Robert Goyer wrote from Plane and Pilot? Okay, a little tip of the hat to Robert. So that he kind of summed this up by saying that by ending the privatization push for now, we're essentially ending the discussions on user fees Mm -hmm. and uh, as a mode for paying for ATC services, which that to me is the the key thing. As you know, pilots are notoriously tight-fisted, and so (laughs) I just uh, didn't want to see safety compromise with uh, balancing that out with having to pay for filing a flight plan or something like that. We didn't know what it would entail, but I'm glad that that's off the table. Yeah, I hear you. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about fun stuff. 
Our guest this week, Mark Brown from Quest, sat down with Tom Haynes. Uh, the two of them shared a great trip a couple of weeks ago, flying out in the Utah desert, like you mentioned. And uh, Mark talks all about his background, a little bit about the airplane and uh, future of the company. So hello and welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm Tom Haynes, Editor-in-Chief, Senior Vice President of Media Communications and Outreach. And joining me today is Mark Brown from Quest Aircraft. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. So, uh, Mark, tell us what it is that you do at Quest. So my, my primary title is Chief Demo Pilot and Director of Marketing. Uh, so more or less, I'm responsible for, for anything marketing related at the company. Uh, as well as being the lead uh, demo pilot for the sales and marketing flight ops division. And then on, I also do uh, help run factory direct sales for our domestic direct territories. Yeah, so people often accuse me of having the best job in the world, and most of the time it is. Um, however, when I was flying with you in Utah uh, a few months ago, I came to the conclusion that, in fact, you have the best job in aviation. Yeah, I, I certainly count my blessings every day. I'm very lucky uh, to get to do what, what I do. Uh, however, I will say that it it is hard work. I work uh, nonstop seven days a week most of the time. So it it it's fun, but it but it is hard. Yeah, no, I know. I I get you, and that's the part that people don't recognize about my job either. Is you know, there's a lot actually a lot to it other than just getting out to uh, go fly fly a fun airplane in some cool location. Uh, every yeah. once in a while. There's a lots lots of in-between time that's a, that's a whole lot of work. In fact, as I understand it, you're getting ready right now uh, to depart for Central America in a Kodiak to do some uh, demo flying down there. What's what's it take to get ready for a trip like that? Well, quite a bit. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I am about to depart uh, tomorrow, actually, for Central America for about three weeks. I will say that I use the resources available to me, so I use a flight planning service to help with the with the technical aspects of crossing the borders and everything. Um, but you you got to get the airplane ready. I mean, we've been prepping for this trip now for about a month. Uh, we had to get the airplane all squared away, make sure the insurance is proper for the plane to to be able to fly into Central America, and then of course, you know, all the marketing and and sales-related activities to make sure that that uh, the money that we're spending on this demo tour goes to to good use, and hopefully we sell a couple airplanes out of it. Yeah, what's your route? Where is it? You're headed down there. So the first going through Mexico, um, going to stop in Veracruz, uh, then to Belize. Belize is kind of the first major stop. From Belize, we'll go to Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. I think a day or two in Nicaragua. And then we'll spend uh, quite a bit of time in Costa Rica and Panama. And my guess is that at least some of the uh, folks that you'll be demoing the airplane to are ones who probably work humanitarian organizations. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, we we don't uh, we don't discriminate on on who we fly. So uh, <laughs> anybody that that is interested in in the Kodiak, we'll make sure that they get up in the plane. And there's a lot of kind of planning on your feet, similar to backcountry flying that you're familiar with, Tom, that we did in Utah. I mean, there's there's a lot of strips that uh, people want to go to that are that are on, not on the sectional. And, you know, it's you fly over the strip a couple of times and you make a call on the spot, whether you whether you can do it, whether the plane can do it. And, you know, typically it's 
the plane can do it, but whether I'm up to the up to snuff to be able to do it is is always the the million dollar question. Right. <laughs> well, it's good that that you know your limitations. Important for all of us. So, but the reason I ask about the humanitarian ones in particular is because that's sort of a design element of the Kodiak. For those not familiar, it's a single engine turboprop, uh, a little bit uh, a little bit shorter, I guess, than a, than a Cessna Caravan, and however, a wider cabin. And um, design the design elements for the airplane were based on some requirements of uh, folks flying missionary and humanitarian work. And so tell us a little bit about that, and then and also how does that relate to the trip and who and who it is you might be flying with in Central America? Sure. Yeah. I mean the the Kodiak was designed from the get go to be a clean sheet airplane. It, it has no relation to any other airplane, uh, contrary to popular belief. Uh, it was designed on on a napkin uh, by by two gentlemen in 1999, and uh, for the sole purpose really to be a modern day bush airplane. So to operate in the farthest reaches of the planet in the harshest environments. Um, so there was there was about 11 design elements that went into the plane that they wouldn't compromise on. Some of those were you know the the slow speed characteristics, being able to take off and land in less than a thousand feet, seating 10 people. Uh, a wingspan no greater than 45 feet. And all of those things were directly related to operating in the humanitarian fields. Uh, these were organizations and groups that were operating a lot of uh, piston airplanes like 206s, uh, Beavers, some Helio Couriers, all where in those places, Avgas is sometimes impossible to get. And if it is possible to get, it's so expensive that um, a turbine actually proves to be a cheaper uh, operating airplane. Mm-hmm. And so the the big design element of the Kodiak, obviously, was that it ran on jet fuel. So it was a turbine engine at the time. The diesel aviation engines weren't around. So everything around the airplane was designed for that mission. And so what it what it ended up getting is kind of the the modern Jeep with wings or Range Rover with wings or Land Cruiser with wings, depending on what part of the world you're in. And so, yeah, so that directly relates. I mean, Central America is one of our core markets because you have a lot of uh, everything from humanitarian organizations all the way to charter operators, et cetera, that operate from a, you know, a tourist airport. So a big, big airport like uh, San Pedro in Belize or um, Guatemala City. And they go to very out of the way places um, in Central America. A lot of times the strips are just carved out of the jungle, maybe 1,500 feet, maybe 55 feet wide. So it's, I mean, it's right at the edge, you know, edge of the envelope. And the Kodiak proves to be the best airplane for them because they can bring in nine passengers, a pilot plus nine passengers. Uh, And, and of course, you have all the safety related aspects about uh, the new modern design of the Kodiak as well. So it's got a Garmin panel with a great Garmin autopilot, that sort of thing, which surely must be helpful, but also synthetic vision and terrain awareness, uh, that sort of thing. I would think that would all be helpful in that kind of environment, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the the G1000, um, actually, uh, the, the Kodiak was the first uh, single-engine turboprop with the G1000. We got it in 2004 when it first came out. And it was, again, it was kind of a, a non-negotiable item. We knew the, the way of the market was going, and we knew the airplane needed a G1000, not only to be competitive, but also to add, you know, all of the situational awareness that it adds. 
Synthetic vision is a lifesaver in a lot of those situations. And, you know, of course, all the other things like the Garmin autopilot that you mentioned with, you know, the underspeed, overspeed protection, the level switch, you know, and then just all the other, you know, enhancements and everything else. You know, the the Kodiak is always a single pilot airplane um, unless regulations stipulate otherwise. So to be able to you know, to fly in those environments, you have to rely on some of the tools the airplane gives you, like autopilot, to make sure you're set up, the airplane's set up, your passengers are set up to go into some of these trips. So other than the times when I was flying the airplane with you and, and maybe scared you, what are, what are some of the other situations that you found yourself in when you're asked to take an airplane like that into maybe some strip, say, in Central America, where you're, perhaps where you're going to be? Any situations that, are, that you can recall that gave you pause? Yeah, there's there, there's probably more than I'd like to count, frankly. I mean, the uh, you know, of course, we always err on the side of caution. That's that's uh, always number one. But you know, I've got nearly eighteen hundred hours in the Kodiak, so it you know, I wear it when I fly it. Uh, I certainly know it uh, pretty well. Uh, but there's you know one one instance in particular. I was flying in a very high elevation airport uh, in Wyoming, and the person that we were flying around uh, wanted to stay on the ground longer than we had anticipated. And so we got into the hot afternoon. This was in the summer. We got into the hot afternoon, and this was a backcountry strip. So of course we didn't have any weather or any ATIS or anything like that. So I was going back old school, trying to figure out density altitude and everything else with the with the temperature. And more or less, it was a short strip, very, very hot. I think it was 35 degrees Celsius when we took off in in a fully loaded airplane in mountains. And so, you know, that one, I was going back, double checking the book. And the beauty about one thing that, that we kind of pride ourselves on at Quest is that our POH is conservative in the numbers that it gives. It's not the numbers in the POH aren't a new airplane with a test pilot uh, on the first day of engine run. It is what any pilot can get, you know, with a with a decently timed engine. So I knew that if I if the POH said that I could do it, that the airplane would do it. And sure enough, it was it was dead on. The POH didn't steer me wrong and, and we got out, but it, it was, there was some pucker factor in there for sure. So I think we've all, any of us who've been flying very long have probably found ourselves in situations like that and frequently look back and go, not going to do that again. Um, how about, how about you? I, I think I will plan a little bit better next time for sure. Yeah. I've uh, been in situations like that where Gosh, you know, I've waited, waiting a few hours for it to cool off or just saying, hey, you know, next uh, tomorrow morning is going to be nice and cool. Might might make more sense, even though you may not want to hang around. Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a, a something I face all the time. Being a, being a demo pilot is, you know, usually I'm flying around prospective customers and uh, there's always a, a delicate balance with showing off the airplane, but also being safe and making sure that, you know, everyone gets out and, and nobody is scared because the last thing you want to do is scare some a prospective customer. So it's it's a balance for sure that we have to we have to play. Yeah. So um, I mentioned a couple of times the, our, our flying together in Utah back uh, a couple of months ago, which uh, resulted in the uh, the story that's in the March um, 20, 2018 issue of AOPA Pilot Magazine that I wrote. And um, it's a part of our destinations package of stories in the March issue about 
uh, cool places to use general aviation airplanes and ways ways to fly. And I thoroughly enjoyed our flying together in, in Utah, southwest or southeast, southern Utah, I guess it really was, uh, where, among other things, we went down into Mineral Canyon Airport, which is a Bureau of Land Management uh, short dirt strip down in a canyon along the Green River. Uh, just, uh, I think it's what, southwest of uh, Moab, uh, which is where we were basically operating out of. Um, had you been into that strip before, uh, w- before you and I went in there? I hadn't, no. That was, your, your first time was my first time. <laughs> so uh, in that case, we happened to be following uh, another Kodiak by uh, a Red, Red Tail Air was ahead of us. It's an excursion company uh, based out of Moab that's got a couple of Kodiaks and some other airplanes that they do some uh, sightseeing and some uh, basically going in and, and picking up hikers and campers and that sort of thing or dropping them off in some pretty remote areas. And so they'd been in there before, so we were following them. But but still, uh, when we descended down into that canyon, and they, they were out of sight by then, and, and so we were just sort of uh, following the river at that point. Uh, what were your thoughts as we were heading down in that canyon? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's there's a lot of things going, going through my mind. Um, you know, I knew they were in front of us, so I think the, the biggest thing for me was making sure that they were well clear of the runway before we got anywhere close by, um, just in case there wasn't a go around. You're certainly, your uh, weather and wind uh, being down in a canyon is, is a big factor in that that I was thinking about, because uh, you get swirly winds in those canyons, and you may have I've seen it where there's there's a tailwind on both ends of the runway and a crosswind in the middle. So yeah, the the, the wind and weather, and then also just the the points on the runway. I'm looking for you know where am I going to touch down? Uh, where if if I don't touch down by a certain point, is there a go around? Will I uh, will I have time to go around? All all those things come into play. Yeah, but at 2,000 feet, uh, even though we're you know pretty high. Uh, elevation there at you know, 2,000 feet, uh, a Kodiak really isn't sweating much at that point because it, it can take off and half of that fully loaded, as I recall. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it, there was definitely plenty of room for margin on that 2,000-foot strip. And and even though we were in a canyon, there wasn't a wall directly at the end of the runway. It was a little ways off. So there there was still a go-around should I have needed it. Um, so, no, it was it, it was no issue for the Kodiak, but it, it just goes to show, I mean, how capable the Kodiak is because 2,000 feet, even for some some small piston engine airplanes, isn't isn't enough on a tarmac, much less a gravel strip in a canyon. Right. So, as uh, somebody who flies professionally, uh, how do you maintain currency, or or what kind of recurrent training do you do? Actually, it's it's funny you ask that. I just got done going through recurrent training. Ah. We have a, a, a training partner called Parkwater Aviation in Spokane, Washington, that has a, a full motion Kodiak sim. Uh, they they do uh, initial training, recurrent training, and a whole bunch of other uh, training courses for the Kodiak. And I I try to go through at least once every twelve months. Uh, I find myself there a little bit more often typically because I'll. I'll help customers and, and other things go through the course or do some in-airplane training while they're going through the sim course. So, um, but I, outside of just the simulator stuff, I mean, I'm always practicing approaches and uh, going into backcountry strip, practicing maneuvers um, with, with nobody in the plane or with other Quest pilots in the plane, um, just to make sure that we're on top of our game when we go out and do these demo tours and, and demos. Yeah. We may even practice some of those, uh, Short field landings uh, there on the paved runway at Moab, as I recall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, how is it you got into aviation? Uh, come from an aviation family? Uh, yes and no. 
Um, my my half brother was an aviator, but he was much older than me, so it wasn't. He didn't play a huge role in in how I got into aviation. Um, initially, when I was in high school, actually before high school, I started flying when I was thirteen. My parents uh, gifted me a Discovery flight for Christmas at age thirteen. Oh, nice! And uh, yeah, and, and you know it's cliche, uh, but after that first flight, I was hooked. I, I knew that uh, I loved it, and uh, so from there, I just in high school it was a hobby. Um, soloed on on my sixteenth birthday, and then some some other things came into play girls college uh so i actually got out of aviation um before i uh really even thought about it being a profession and did some other things went to school worked in finance for a little while and then met my current fiance who's also a pilot and uh neither one of us were too thrilled with our jobs we were sitting behind a computer way too much and we would fly on the weekends just as a hobby and we kind of decided one day that that our hobby would be a pretty cool profession because we love to travel, we love adventure, and, and we love to fly. And the only way we could figure to get get paid for all of those things is just to be pilots. And and that was uh, about five six years ago now that we've been doing this. Mm-hmm. So how did you make the leap then? Because you, it sounds like you were relatively inexperienced when you pilot when you made that decision. How did you get the the credentials and and find find the job you currently have? Yeah, it was. It was a pretty big leap for sure because we were, you know, in in our mid twenties at that time, um, and uh, kind of at that point, a lot of people think, oh, I, you know, it's tough to change careers, and so it was, it was, uh, we were all in. We kind of jumped in with both feet. Uh, of course, the most daunting part of that was the financial aspect of it. Uh, we knew we would have to quit our jobs if we really wanted to do it, and and we did, we did just that. So we quit our jobs and. Uh, we actually um, moved. Luckily, uh, my my in-laws, Ashley's parents, uh, took us in, and we moved back in with them for a short while. Uh, sold, you know, sold pretty much everything we had except our cars. Wow. And and I I was lucky enough. I applied for every scholarship that I could find. Um, and and luckily, we were able to to pay for it. And then you know we spent every bit of time at the airport we could trying to to bum free rides off people you know people that were going from houston to dallas or houston to austin or new orleans and just you know sitting right seat with them getting getting some flight time there that was free and you know a lot of a lot of the uh the guys at the airport love to have somebody in the right seat because i don't know i personally don't know anybody that likes to fly alone um so yeah it was you know it we went from both having about 80 hours uh, to having about 500 hours in, in a span of 14 months. We got our mm. uh, instrument rating, our commercial rating, and multi-commercial in that time frame. And that that led to our first paying aviation jobs, and I guess the rest is history. Wow, that's a great story. So Ashley is flying uh, corporate now, right? So I recall. That's correct. Yeah, she flies. Uh, she's rated in four different jets, uh, a couple Falcons and a Westwind that she flies here out of Dallas. Yeah. Do you guys ever see each other with the with? I know what your travel schedule is like, and I've heard what hers is like. You must only cross paths occasionally. Yeah, and you know it's funny. We see each other more often than not outside of our home here in, in <laughs> Dallas Fort Worth. But uh, but yeah, we cross paths, and luckily. Uh, she's also rated in the Kodiak, and and she'll help me on on Kodiak trips here here and there. So that's that's a good plus of the job. Yeah, you know it's interesting. So you didn't have a strong aviation connection uh, in as a youth, and the way that 
many pilots do. I, I didn't, but um, so many do come from aviation families. And, you know, you're still 20-something, so millennial. Uh, people talk a lot about millennials um, not being interested in aviation, and we, we just don't see that many of them in aviation, unfortunately, which is a real shame because we def- definitely need to figure out how to appeal to younger audiences. Uh, the average age of at least our membership is 60 here at AOPA, and, and that's probably fairly almost representative of the entire pilot population. So how is it that that you made that uh, transition into aviation and discovered it, and it appears that so many others don't? Well, it was certainly daunting. I mean, um, I, you know, obviously being, being 29 currently and, um, you know, having a lot of friends my age, some in aviation, some not, and they see what I get to do. And and a lot of the people that aren't in aviation, you know, say, wow, that, you know, I, I wish I got to do what you do. Um, and, you know, I ask them, well, why don't you? And, And it's always the same two reasons, the time and the money. And, you know, the, the prospect of jobs really up and up, up until just the last few years hasn't been that great. I mean, I remember when we, when we kind of made that leap five, six years ago, the, the pilot shortage was certainly talked about, but it wasn't, it hadn't mm-hmm. come to fruition yet. And our flight instructor, our, our very first flight instructor took a job at a regional airline. His first year made $24,000. Mm. Wow. And yeah. And, and so it was. It was not a, um, for lack of a better term, sexy career to get into. I mean, everyone looks at pilots, and it, it certainly seems like a cool career, but uh, the the money you have to pay up front versus the reward, at least initially, was was not a good you know a good investment. You know, we made it because uh, we loved it. We had both you know kind of come to the realization that that the the office nine to five job was not for us. Um, I think we both. Uh, kind of, kind of put put the lifestyle ahead of the money. Um, that's that's certainly something that uh, if you know money isn't everything for us, as long as we're living kind of the life that that we want to live and experiencing life to the fullest, you know, it, it really doesn't matter how much money we have in the bank. Um, and so, so for us, it was it wasn't an easy decision, but it was a decision we knew we had to make for our own happiness. But um, you know, I think for, for a lot of the millennials out there, there's so many other opportunities out there now. And frankly, a lot of people commit a lot of money ahead of time to college and doing things that they maybe aren't really thrilled with and they graduate and they're not, ha- you know, they're not happy with uh, the, the path they've taken. But but switching careers like we did uh, is just too daunting for them. It's too risky or, or maybe that they, they don't have uh, the resources that we had. I mean, we, we, we certainly couldn't could not have done it without the people around us helping us. And, uh, and so that, you know, all of those things stack up and it, it, it's a hard industry to, I think, to get into. So there's certainly, you know, I try to do my best to speak to, to my peers and, and kind of teach them the ways. And now, of course, the pilot shortage and the increasing wages, I think, is making the, uh, the career path a little bit uh, more attractive. Uh, but still, I mean, I think there's there's a couple facets of aviation. Ashley and I personally love the the general aviation. We own our own airplanes, and um, I think that area of aviation. You know, I, I see a lot of people just going through these quick 
pilot courses and um, they never really find the love of aviation. It's just a job. They fly jets and, and they never step foot in a 172 after initial training. And, and I think that that's a shame because general aviation is really the, the fun. Uh, being able to hop in your own airplane, fly fly to get a hundred dollar hamburger, hang out with friends at the airport, and fly home that afternoon. I mean, t- to me, that's really what aviation's about, and and I hate to see that part of aviation uh, kind of falling by the wayside. Yeah, you mentioned uh, airplanes that you own. What what do you own? So we own a, a 1946 Globe Swift. Oh wow, uh, <laughs> they're fun. Yeah, it's it's a uh, you know a lot of people say it's kind of a mini P fifty one. It's certainly uh-huh. I've never flown a P fifty one, but uh, I, I have to imagine they fly very similar. They're they're kind of uh, they land similar, and of course the the Swift I've got a lot less power up up front, but uh, it, it's a lot of fun. And then we also have a, a 1946 J three Cub. Wow. And then somebody's in the family. I think you've, I've heard you talk about a Cessna 195. Yeah, that uh, I, I can't claim that one. That's Ashley and her dad's. They co-own the the 1954 Cessna 195. Wow, that's a cool airplane as well. The business liner. Yeah, that to me, that's the. I don't think there's another airplane quite as beautiful as a 195. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, you know, you talk about the training uh, and what it is that you and Ashley did to sort of chuck it all and, and just, you know, dive into the training and, and how daunting that can be. And certainly training to be a pilot is, there's a lot to it, and it certainly can be challenging. As as ones who have been through the in, sort of intense training just in the last few years, what could be different? What could make it easier for your peers who are not pilots, who are maybe interested, but say, hey, this is just, just too much? Uh, what could we do to make that more appealing? That's a great question. Um, it, it's something actually we think about quite a bit, and I don't know that there's a perfect answer to it. I think, you know, for us, um, certainly having I think other uh, a, a support group in a way, um, being able to to go through a more structured class, or or even being able to go uh, to a school with other young people. I mean the we got our instrument rating and our commercial rating just at our local flight school at the airport, you know, part 61. It wasn't a one, uh, a 145 school. Uh, and you know, we were the youngest ones there, as you said, by about 40 years. Now we, you know, we, we have a lot of, you know, we're old souls and, and we certainly love to hang out with the, with the local guys at the airport. Um, but, uh, we're, I think, unique in that sense. I think a lot of folks our age have uh, have trouble speaking to uh, an older generation, and and it scares them, or they just don't want to be around it. They'd rather, you know, be uh, doing things that twenty-year-olds do these days. And and uh, so I think having, you know, if, if there was a way to get younger people involved and kind of create a support group. And, and there's some, there's certainly some out there that I've seen spring up in the last few years. I think that's one way to get younger people involved. And then of course the, the, the financial side of it is, is I think the biggest issue. I mean, the, the scholarships, a lot of people don't realize how many scholarships are out there, but even still, I mean, those are the, those are in limited supply and certainly not enough to go around for all the pilots that we need. Um, so figuring out a way maybe to reduce the cost of flight training or um, figuring out a way to maybe spread that cost out without having to incur crazy student loans and, and or something like that. I certainly don't have the answer or I'd be doing something about it. But 
that uh, I, I think those are, the, you know, at least that's what we hear in, in our circles is kind of the biggest, biggest parts of initial flight training. Yeah. And so the perfect opportunity, thank you for that segue to, for me to plug the AOPA scholarship program. We currently have about $130,000 worth of scholarship money out available uh, for a variety of scholarships uh, that and it's currently open for the applications I think it runs through early May uh, and if you just go to AOPA's website aopa.org and uh, search on scholarships you'll be able to find how it is that you can apply for for one of those scholarships and you know maybe we can create another Mark Brown uh, at some point in the future yeah and if, if you don't mind I'll actually plug um, the Cessna 195 scholarship this the Cessna 195 group have has a uh, foundation and they give uh, two scholarships away every year, and the website is Cessna195.org. Great. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's wonderful. So uh, what, let's look forward a little bit. The Kodiak is a fairly new airplane, certified, as I recall, in 2007 or thereabouts. And it's actually a pretty mature product uh, because you've already got float certification, uh, uh, a jump door, uh, and um, a lot of certifications in a lot of countries around the world, way quicker than a lot of models have, have uh, been. But what's the next generation of, of airplane going to look like? And, and based on your uh, world, what would be helpful in, in the next generation of Kodiak or some other airplane? Gosh, that, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I certainly know what I'd like to see. Um, you know, the, the company tends to keep the Skunk Works division away from us in sales and marketing because we tend to have big mouths. But <laughs> <laughs> they... Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know anything that's coming down the pike, but uh, I, I know that um, we've made just in the in the 10 years the airplane's been out. I mean, every year there's pretty significant updates to the airframe and the avionics and, and to make it a better airplane, a faster airplane, a safer airplane. Um, I, I think there's been over 250 different changes in the plane each year since 2007. So, you know, I think our, our big focus right now is kind of getting the Kodiak 100 uh, to a to a point where all those little uh, things that might be irritating to customers um, are are worked out and the airplane is as good as it can be. Yeah. Uh, just yesterday, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association had their state of the general aviation industry meeting in Washington, D.C. I was down there for that. It's an annual thing they do where they announce, among other things, all of the deliveries from the previous year. And in, in 2017, the number of turboprops uh, actually declined. Um, it's the only major category that had a decline. Uh, everything else was up a little bit, the jets and the single-engine piston airplanes, and actually piston helicopters were up like almost 18%, a pretty amazing jump there. Uh, but at the end of the day, the numbers are all still pretty small. However, turboprops was was down by about 3.3%. So again, not a huge number, but 563 turboprops delivered in 2017. Does that surprise you? Uh, not really. Um, actually, the kind of the at least the tendency that that we've seen in the market is when the economy is doing really well, uh, the turboprop segment tends to to not do so well. But and then when the economy kind of does a self correction, the turboprop segment kind of rebounds. It's it's almost a reverse uh, cycle. Uh, where, you know, when, when people have a lot of money in their pockets, you know, I think everyone wants a jet. That's the dream. Right. And uh, and, and so that that tends to the jets tend to do really good. And we also have seen uh, in the market, the, the single engine trainer market, uh, piston market, 
is done so well because there's there's a, a bigger need for training. I mean, just Piper alone has uh, gotten some some big orders. Yeah, they did. I think it's about what we expected. So I, you know, and of course the helicopter I think is closely correlated to oil and gas kind of rebounding. But um, I I think the turboprop segment certainly has, uh, you know, in, in our product the Kodiak it's it's a niche product. I mean, we have our customers that that need the plane, and we have some customers that just want the plane. Uh, and, and we, you know, we have a pretty good idea of, of how many of those people are around the world each year. And, and I think we, we've got a pretty good gauge on, on what the market demand is. Yeah. So people have been calling kind of for the demise of the turboprop for, well, it seems I've been, you know, covering general aviation stuff now for 30 couple of years. And it seems like everybody's been saying, you know, it's it's the end of the turboprop era. And yet, since I've been in aviation, the caravan, I guess, was already out by the time I started covering aviation, but not by much. Uh, and and the PC-12 and the um, TBM-700 and the Meridian and all those airplanes have all come out since I started covering general aviation. So the single-engine turboprop category almost didn't exist uh, 30 years ago or 30 couple years ago. Caravan came along and... Um, it, it seems like, as a result of that, uh, the turboprop market has just had this unbelievably long life after people had been saying that that's sort of the end of the turboprop era, because they only had conceived of it, I think, as a, basically a King Air or, or you know, twin-engine turboprops. Kodiak you know, kind of fit right into that slot, and uh, does it feel like that that category is getting a little crowded now? Because there are a couple other ones, uh, in, you know, Epic's got an airplane in, in the works, and uh, there's a couple of other single-engine turboprops out there. Feeling crowded? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you're right. I mean, there's definitely been uh, some new entrants, all great airplanes. Um, I've been lucky enough to fly a lot of those that you mentioned. Um, I think where the Kodiak kind of sits, you know, we're such a niche product and, and it fits, it, it kind of fits a different need, if you will. I mean, uh, I would say if, if, uh, if I was buying a high, fast, far single engine turboprop, that market is certainly getting a bit crowded. Uh, but for the for the heavy hauler, uh, short takeoff and landing kind of um, you know your your SUV with wings category, you know the Kodiak's really kind of the only one that that does certain things. I mean, the Caravan is a great airplane. I've got some time in a, in a Caravan, but um, you know, designed for a little bit different mission than the Kodiak. So those people that really need that short takeoff and landing, the, the kind of stuff that you and I did in Utah you know, the Kodiak's really the only one that can do a lot of those things. And so for us, we, we don't, we certainly don't feel too crowded in the market. So, um, we just talked about the 2017 numbers. How's 2018 shaping up for Quest? Actually, it's been the, the best start of the year, uh, that we've ever had in our 10 year history. Um, January was unbelievable for us and uh, February shaping up to be the same. So hopefully we can continue on this trajectory throughout the year. Yeah. What's the mix from domestic and international? Uh, actually, the it, for 2018 specifically, it's been uh, predominantly domestic. However, uh, in, in our history, we're almost dead on 50-50 domestic international. Yeah. And as I recall from you and I talking before, one of the differences, though, that is that a lot of the domestic sales are more domestic sales than internationally are to owner-flown pilots, people just using it personally. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, our, our largest demographic segment in North America is the what we classify as owner-flown, owner-operator airplanes. And it's, you know, some, some of our owners really use it for, for what it's designed for. And some of our owners uh, certainly have enough money where it's 
it's one airplane of many in the hangar and, and they just enjoy aviation and we're happy with that too. Yeah. And is that, uh, is it a little bit like the sort of the Land Rover uh, sort of factor where they've got this sort of backcountry capable sort of airplane that uh, never leaves pavement? Yeah, we certainly see a lot of that. Uh, we've, we've, of course, seen a big uptick in the uh, float plane market, the Kodiak on floats. Yeah. Because, uh, we, you know, with the Aeroset floats, it, the, the Kodiak on Aeroset floats is just an unbelievable uh, float plane. So, you know, there's like I said, the, the owner operator market, there's, there's a lot of owners, you know, they'll have, they'll have the Kodiak on floats to get from their lake house, to get to the airport, to get in their jet. And then there's some that, you know, it's their only airplane and, and all they have is a house and a ranch and they're a hundred nautical miles between the two. And the Kodiak is just the, the transportation to get to the ranch. They land right next to their ranch house and, and see their family at night. So it's all over the map. Yeah. Wow. Sounds Sounds great. You mentioned the Aeroset floats, and for those who don't know, Aeroset uh, has a line of, of composite floats, uh, but pretty much the f- first one to have it out there, at least on a, on a large scale. And I had my first opportunity to fly an airplane on composite floats uh, just uh, about two weeks ago, uh, Cessna 185, um, and I'd flown the same airplane a year earlier on straight floats that were typical um, aluminum floats, and then flew it this year on composite floats and and i was surprised how noticeable it is um, that the super smooth composite floats uh, really do perform better and i guess you probably apparently have noticed that on the kodiak as well yeah i mean the kodiak on the composite aeroset floats and in the kodiak specifically where it's a carbon fiber float just because it's a bit bigger and we needed the the added strength of carbon fiber um it is it's incredible i mean off the water time fully loaded is just about 20 seconds um on on metal floats on the kodiak it was you know close to i think 50 60 seconds so it's 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 better than than double the performance and of course you have all the benefits too that come with the composite floats you you don't have corrosion that's always your biggest issue on floats is is the corrosive nature especially of salt water so of course composite there's there's none of that issue it's um, my favorite part of the floats is the fact that I don't have to pump them every 12 to 24 hours. <laughs> that is nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So where do you go from here personally? What's what's up next for Mark Brown? You know, that's a great question, Tom. I, I certainly think about that a lot. Um, you know, uh, we're, Ashley and I are here in Texas. I think both of us are certainly very, very comfortable, which is maybe a dangerous thing to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly love my job. As you said, I, I have the best job in aviation. I, I will, uh, argue that with anybody, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I think the sky is the limit. No, no pun intended there. Um, there's a lot of really cool opportunities out there and it, it will certainly be in aviation in some capacity that that's a lifelong vocation of ours for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We are in a, in a really special place. The people we get to interact with in general aviation are, are generally just really good folks and, um, get to fly a lot of fun airplanes to, to really interesting places. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we're both in good, pretty good places. Yes, sir. Definitely. All right, Mark. Thanks for taking time to talk with us here on Hangar Talk and, uh, have a great flight down to Central America and we'll look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. All right. Bye.
David, uh, Mark, I think he's got a big future in front of him, a uh, young guy and uh, just really dynamic and exciting to see him there at, uh, at Quest and doing a great job. Yeah, there was a lot of energy in that, and uh, I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about uh, the Quest Kodiak. I would really like to fly in that one day. Just oh, a, yeah, man. Yeah, I'm just a little tip to Mark there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Look, you can catch us at uh, aopa.org slash talk. We're now on iTunes and on the Sporties Takeoff app. All right, thanks. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>